On this Christmas morning, something different, a preview, if you will, of what is to come next after we are moving through the the sunset and the closing verses of the book of Amos this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, wisdom. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 42. heard the word of the Lord, and he wrote this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for his law. Behold, former things that have come to pass and new things that I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things. Truly new things are hard for humans to understand. And they're, they're, they're hard to wrap your mind around. They're, if they're truly new, they're hard to get a point of reference on that you can understand them based off the things that have come before. As my granny would say, it's like a calf looking at a new gate. And therefore, new things require wisdom. They require insight. Are they da- is it dangerous? Is it helpful? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it boring? Is it glorious? Things that are truly new, truly new, and not the extension of something else, are very difficult for the sons and daughters of Adam to get a grasp on. New things require wisdom. New things require wise men. I would have you note concerning wisdom that though in the church it is often talked about from a scriptural perspective, the reality is is scripture does not deal with wisdom as being inherently righteous. Instead, wisdom is something that can either be seen as being good or bad depending on the manner in which it is approached. And so if you want to look at an example of good wisdom that is employed well among men, we could certainly look, as we're going to this morning, to Matthew chapter 2 and verses 1 through 2. Many of you may have already read this to your children this morning before you came to church. That after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men... Men with wisdom. Magos is the singular in the Greek. Magi 
being the plural. Men of wisdom, magos, magi, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now there's good wisdom. The scripture also speaks of bad magos and bad wisdom. Like in Acts chapter 13, in verses 4 through 8, where Paul, upon his missionary journey, it says that so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a certain magos, a certain wise man. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Note the difference between wisdom and and intelligence. A man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elymas, the Magos, the magician, the wise man, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so here you see the two sides of the coin of wisdom in Scripture. Wisdom that is good, the wisdom of the wise men, the magi that come seeking the Christ, and the wisdom of this Jewish false prophet. The magician who would seek to turn the heart of men away from the faith. Such it is, and such it has been for millennia. For as long as men have been seeking it. In Numbers chapter 24, we hear the words of a diviner, a magician, a sorcerer, a wise man. And yet one who is assaulted against his will by the Holy Spirit. And Balaam, the son of Beor, in verse 17 says this. Speaking about something new something that he can't quite wrap his mind around, no matter how hard he tries. I see him, but not now. Oh, good grief, guys. Can I break character for a moment? Man, this is 3,500 years ago. This is 1,500 years before Christ. It was almost as far before Christ as we are now from Christ. And you've got this Moabite dog of a sorcerer who has been hired for some dirty business. And the Holy Spirit just grabs him. To the point that he cannot control his own thoughts and his own tongue. 
He speaks the opposite of what he desires. He speaks the opposite of what his patrons have paid for. And he sees the new thing that Isaiah 700 years later would talk about. But he can't see it clearly. It's far away from him. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. New things are hard to understand. And yet some understand it better than others. And so here's the better in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's the lionest liar that ever lied in Lyreville. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Not the wisdom of Balaam. Not the wisdom of Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet. But instead, men that operated in righteous wisdom. And so, we have to ask the question this morning, what made them different from Balaam? And what made them different in their wisdom from Bar-Jesus? And the answer is this. That righteous wisdom is defined not by the content of the mind of the one who holds it, but instead is defined by the God who gives it. For in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, 
It is written that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, speaking particularly of wisdom as it applies to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, coincidentally in this context, even in the midst of the Antichrist, the prophet Daniel writes in Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 through 35, about the nature of righteous wisdom that has its roots in the fear of the Lord. And he says this, that forces from him, that being from the Antichrist, that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce many with flattery, those who violate the covenant, but, but, and here you see, Say, man, we were on Christmas and we made this jump to the apocalypse. I I know. (laughs) Friends, you can't separate the two. The child born of the virgin is the king on the white horse. It's all the same. Now here you're about to see in Daniel when the stakes are seemingly a lot higher than they are at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. Same stakes. Here you see what godly wisdom looks like. Not the wisdom of Balaam. Not the wisdom of Bar-Jesus, but the wisdom of truly wise men. Here's what it looks like. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God. That's the foundational statement. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. And so, When we want to talk about godly wisdom, there's a couple of things that we can say. First of all, it's this. If it's going to be godly wisdom, if it's going to be righteous wisdom and not evil wisdom, then it is going to be founded in the fear and in the knowledge of God. And so here are those that know their God. But it doesn't end there. It is not sufficient for righteous wisdom to simply know who God is. It must be translated into an action that causes others to understand. You don't get to sit in an office with your lexicon stacked up on both sides. Mutter to yourself and mark on a whiteboard. It's not enough. Those who know their God are the wise, and the wise will cause others to understand. And then they'll pay the price. The wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. 
When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. In other words, what Daniel is saying is this, is that wisdom, true wisdom, righteous wisdom is dependent upon knowing God. It is dependent upon expressing itself to others that they may know God. It is dependent upon willing to be able to take it straight in the teeth. For what wisdom would say. And unlike Balaam, and unlike the Magus bar Jesus, these magi, by grace, knew him. This is not, I don't, I don't care what you read, what we see in Matthew chapter 2 is not a natural cosmic event. I mean, this star doesn't play by the rules. <laughs> they, man, one of the things you can guarantee about celestial phenomenon is that they move according to the math, and this thing doesn't. It leads them all the way to Jerusalem without moving after it's rising. And then once they show up there, it moves to lead them to Bethlehem, which is literally as far from Jerusalem as from here to the Greenwood Town Square. And so you have a star that has been hanging in place for goodness knows how long. That in an evening, moves its position across the heavens to set over the spot where the child lay. More than that, when signs in the heavens were not sufficient to tell them what was necessary for them to know, the Lord gives them specific information in a dream, divine intervention so that they can know who to trust and who not to. They were wise men. They were wise men because they knew who their God was. And they acted out accordingly. And so here's the expression of their wisdom. In Matthew chapter 2, they were wise men because they knew their God. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That functions then to work outwardly to bring that wisdom to other people and to suffer if necessary. And the Lord is very involved here in, in revealing himself to them, both through natural, uh, well, not natural, supernatural phenomenon upon a natural creation and specific divine intervention when there was things that was critical that they needed to know. And so they come seeking a king and they knock on Herod's door. We have come for the king of the Jews that we may worship him for we have seen his star rise. The very one that Isaiah and Balaam spoke of. They came searching a king. But the reality is in the context of the day everybody was searching a king. They were all looking for a Messiah. 
They were all, look, all of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all looking for someone to get the Roman sandal off of their neck. I mean, good grief. Herod's own advisors, the chief priests and the scribes, were able to answer on demand when he said, where will the king of the Jews be born? And they said, Bethlehem, and we can quote chapter and verse. That's where he's coming from. But it wasn't just the lawyers of the age. Everybody was looking for a king. Everybody was looking for a king that was going to be their savior, their Messiah. Christ's brothers were looking for it. I mean, his own brothers. It says in John chapter 7 that Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers were getting impatient. They looked at him and said, If you're who you say you are, if you really are this thing, then get up there to Jerusalem and get with it and let them see what you're doing. Make a splash. Be the politician. Be the king. This is the same thing the Jews thought in general. After he had been a thorn in their side for long enough that they were losing their sense of humor, in John chapter 10, in verse 23 through 24, it says, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It wasn't just his blood kin, and it wasn't just culture at large it was also those who were the closest to him his disciples man they were looking for a king peter specifically in matthew chapter 16 verse 21 through 23 at that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Men had their mind set on a Messiah that they had enough intelligence, if not wisdom, they had enough intelligence to understand had been prophesied was coming and they were looking for the king that would bring it. They looked for it. Herod looked for it. The scribes looked for it. Jesus' own blood kin looked for it. The people were generally looking for it. The apostles specifically looked for it. And it continued even amongst the Gentiles to the very bitter end. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Righteous wisdom versus evil wisdom. Wise men versus sorcerers. One has a wisdom that is based in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord and spreads that to others regardless of the cost or the consequence. The others mock because what they see does not fulfill their expectation. The wise men of Matthew chapter 2 were truly wise. The Greek vocabulary fails us. Magus can mean these guys that are inspired, led by the Lord, revealing Himself to them in all of these miraculous ways. That word can mean those guys or it can mean this guy over here that's trying to turn the pro-council from the faith. But what cannot be escaped is the context. And what these men do, what they do is what proves what they are. Everybody's looking for a king. And they are too. Oh man, there's no doubt in their mind. They come to Herod and say, where is the king born of the Jews? We have seen his star rise in the east. But they're looking for a king plus. What makes them wise in the expression of their wisdom is they are looking for a king, but they are looking for more than a king. They are looking for Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 60, speaking of the same star that would rise out of Jacob, speaking of the same scepter, the prophet says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. 
Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. You translate that into the Greek, it's literally the gospel. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord, all the flocks of Kedar, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nabioth shall minister to you and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Everybody's looking for a king. And rightfully so. But wrongfully so, they're looking at one according to the wisdom of men and not to the wisdom of the fear and the knowledge of God. In Isaiah chapter 60, here is the fear of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You will get your king. Your star will rise. And when he rises... He will come with evangelio. He will come with good news. He will come with the gospel. He will come with gold and frankincense. He will come with an altar. And in doing so, will beautify his beautiful house. You know what makes the wise men wise? What makes them wiser than everybody else? What makes them wiser than, 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 than all of the high priests and all of the scribes that Herod was consulting? What makes them wiser than Jesus' brothers? What makes them wiser than the people in general? What makes them wiser than the apostles and even Peter himself? What makes them wiser is this, is everybody was looking for a king, but they came looking for a king who was also a priest and no one else was looking for that. It is evidenced in the gifts that they give. They weren't looking for the guy swinging a sword. They were looking for the guy that was going to make intercession and propitiation. Which is why they came looking for a king not to exalt or give their allegiance to, but instead a king to worship. Big difference. It is evidenced in their gifts. Man, every, every five-year-old child can tell you what they brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very expensive commodities. Still to this day. It has often been said, if you have a Bible that has the line across the bottom with men's opinions about the Word of God below the line, it has often been said, these are gifts fitting a king. Gifts fit for a king. Well, in their value and their rarity, they are certainly fit for a king, but I would propose to you that they are not gifts befitting of a king. All the gold, perhaps, but 
kings already have gold. You know what you brought a king in this era? Slaves and chariots and war horses. Everything else was but a token. Oh, they brought the other stuff. They brought the grain and they brought the raisins and they brought the pomegranate. They brought all the other stuff, but it was just for show. This is the day of Caesars and Herod's. Power was maintained by might. Consider their gifts. They brought gold. You know, the tabernacle in the wilderness was formed out of the gold that had been looted from the Egyptians at the Exodus that was primarily made up of earrings and nose rings melted down and hammered into the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the table of showbread. All total, for a people wandering nomads in the wilderness, 2,200 pounds. Sounds impressive until you consider what Solomon imported out of Orpha. The book of Numbers would tell us, or not Numbers, excuse me, the book of First Kings would tell us that Solomon imported 34 tons. 34 tons. 68,000 pounds of gold. Scholars estimate that at the time it represented a full half of all of the gold resources on the planet. More of that gold went to the temple than to any other venture. It didn't go to the house of the cedars of Lebanon. It didn't go to Solomon's palace. More of it went into the temple than anywhere else. If you looked at a given amount of gold in the nation of Israel when Solomon sat on the throne, a higher percentage of that amount was going to be in the temple than any other place you could find. It wasn't going to be in the throne. It wasn't going to be in the king's palace. It was going to be in the house of God. Moreover, the frankincense and myrrh in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 28 The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest of spices, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by a perfumer, It shall be a holy anointing oil. And with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and basins and its stand and you shall consecrate them. 
and they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout all your generations. It shall be poured out on, it shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person. Now check, check out what he's about to say because this gets pretty gritty. When I taught this the first time in senior adult Sunday school, I was reading through this stuff and I was like, hey man, it's hard to reach back and make a connection with a society that is not a Western society that is like nearly 4,000 years old. And right here's a recipe. This would be pretty cool. You could kind of put this together, right? And you could have something you could bring to class. You could be that cool teacher has the hands-on experience. You know what I mean? This is what this is what the anointing oil of the temple smelled like. Yeah, not so much. It shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy. It shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Scrap that lesson plan. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stocked and oncha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each there shall be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. You want to see the expression of their wisdom? Everybody else was looking for a conquering king. They came looking for a king who was a priest, who was an intercessor, a star that would rise and would shine and through the altar of sacrifice beautify his beautiful house and so they didn't bring him the gifts of a king they brought him what was necessary to perform the rites of a priest they were looking for someone you want to know what made them wise they were looking for someone that could make intercession. They were looking for someone where after thousands of years of shadow and copy could actually stand between a sinful man and a holy God and make it right. And they found him. Wisdom had its day. The Lord had made himself known to them. He showed them his star rise in the east. He led them to where he was. He inspired upon them what to bring. 
He informed them of who was false. They were looking for someone to make propitiation and they found him. For in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 10 through 18. Merry Christmas, Mount Zion. For it was fitting. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. This is why he's not ashamed to call you brother. Because he's not just a king. If he was just a king, you would be beneath him. He is not ashamed to call you brother, Mount Zion. He's not ashamed to call you sister. Instead, he says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What you see in Hebrews chapter 2 is a picture of of heavenly worship where Jesus Christ himself stands before the throne of his father says because of what I've done these are mine I am both the king and the priest that has propitiated them made intercession so that they can stand before you and I will proclaim your glories in their midst and lead them in it. Do you understand that in heaven you see Jesus Christ standing in the midst of the church leading the worship service? Toby, you'll have to sit that one out, buddy. You see him preaching to his own people. Now I'll set that one out. I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like him in every respect. So that when wise men come seeking a king that is also an eternal priest that can make actual intercession between them and God, they come looking for a baby. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people but because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. They were wise because they knew their God. And because they knew their God, they come looking for more than a king. They came looking for a king who was also a priest, interceding and propitiating for his people. And because the wisdom was from God and not from man, they found him. My prayer this Christmas day is that you do the same. Let us bow the knee. Let us rejoice. Merry Christmas.